Hello and welcome to this week's episode of uh, Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I am one of your critics, Joshua Tracy. And I am Corwin Heller. And what's funny is for the first time in uh, 300 episodes of podcast between this and Juicing the Numbers, for the first time, I had a brief moment where I was about to say your name as my name. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny, but it's hilarious. It really took me aback because, like, I know it was a very small pause I had, but your mind can move very quickly. And in that pause, I both was prepared to say your name and then also questioned why I felt like I was about to say your name instead of my own. Um and and nearly lost myself in that very small rabbit hole, but here we are. We made it. Here we are. Uh, all right. So anyway, Josh's uh, mental failings to the side. Uh, we are here today to talk about the 2013 film Oblivion and the 1955 film The Night of the Hunter. Corbin Heller, do you have a film you'd like to start with today? No, I do not. All right, then uh, let's start with Oblivion for no reason other than I said it first. Um, So Oblivion came out in 2013. It was directed by Joseph Kosinski. Um, It was the screenplay was written by Carl Gaidusek and Michael Arndt. Um, And then the graphic novel was written by Joseph Kosinski, who, again, would be the director of this film. Uh, this also stars Tom Cruise, Morgan Freeman, and Andrea Risenborough. Uh, this film had an estimated budget of $120 million um, and a cumulative worldwide gross of $286 million. So that is certainly a success. Uh, do we have a tagline for this bitch? Uh, yes, Earth is a memory worth fighting for. Eh, that's up for debate. Uh, eh. uh, no, 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 I take that back. Earth is worth fighting for. We are not worth fighting for. No, I'm terrible. Yeah. Um. All right. Uh, there's no major awards nor wins. Uh, this movie is about a veteran assigned to extract Earth's remaining resources, begins to question what he knows about his mission and himself. Corbin Heller, this was your movie. You get us started. Oh, I don't want to do that yet. Um, I basically picked this because I remember really being surprised by it. You know, I think this was in the stage of like, man, Tom Cruise is really crazy. I really am not about him and just being surprised by oh shit tom cruise is actually still really good at this and and you know does produce some really good stuff uh and second time watching it through is genuinely a pretty good mystery thriller um it's one of those movies where i was more drawn in by kind of the world that was created and the information that kind of develops and you pick up throughout and just like the little details of you know the environment they're in and and the landscape that has been created because of this war so to speak and uh just the little things like the actual storyline of you know tom cruise having memories and and wanting to stay on earth and being married to 
a woman that really doesn't give a shit and just trying to go home. I don't really care. Like that's was whatever for me. Um, but the actual world building in this film, I think was where it really hit home for me and was, um, you know, the, the biggest draw. And honestly, what I, the reason why I would continue to recommend this movie to people. Um, so when you had said this was our movie, I was like, oh man, I can't believe I missed this movie. Like, it seems weird that I would completely have zero recollection of a major action, big budget action film from very recently starring one of Hollywood's biggest stars. And then I started watching it that watching this and I went, oh no, I did see this movie and it is the second rewatch or the first rewatch first rewatch second watch of the movie really solidified to me why I forgot about this movie because this is a very boilerplate movie um it's fine it is okay um you 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 kind of know where it's going very early on because it has to go somewhere. Like if the linear progression of this film was Tom Cruise and the girl, um, what's her name? Andrea Risenborough. Victoria. Yes, Victoria. If the linear progression of this film is them finishing their time on Earth and then going to the Tet, why would we be watching it? That seems to have no point. Um, so. It, it, it's it's not exactly subtle, the idea of what's going to happen here. And unfortunately, to that point, this movie is very long and takes, hmm. I checked, almost an hour to get into the plot of the movie. Wow. It didn't seem wow. like that long of a movie to me. It's a two-hour long movie. This is yeah, a two-hour really long, long movie. And it took almost the first full hour to get into the plot it's world it's, building i mean how much world building is does needs to happen in a film in which the world is theoretically abandoned and destroyed um i think it's pretty important for the quote unquote twist that they have so if you haven't seen this movie why are you listening but also spoiler alert where the tet was the aliens that invaded and the People they thought were aliens were actually the humans and all that bullshit. Um, the idea of building the world to kind of... Basically, they built this world that would make clear sense for any cliche boiler movie, you know, action thriller of like, oh, aliens invaded. We barely won because humans are resilient and they survive and, and technical ingenuity, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, oh, no, like the humans are the alien. Uh, God, that was such a piss poor way of explaining it. But I think you know what I mean. I don't think you could have that kind of twist and have any sort of payoff with that twist without an extensive level of world building leading up to that. I disagree. It's a very simple concept. They spent almost an hour on. I mean, the first four minutes of this movie is literally just shots of scenery with Tom Cruise talking over it, explaining how we got here. And then it spends 45 minutes after that, just kind of showing it to you. It's, it's just overkill. Okay. 
I will agree. The visuals in this movie are very nice. I enjoyed them a lot. But uh, the, again, I love landscape. And boy, this has a lot of really gorgeous landscapes shots. Yeah, a lot of great sunset visuals, which can feel cliched at times. But when you're in a house that is, I, I don't know, like I'm half a mile in the sky over a cloud line, looks pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like like the set design in this movie is great. All that shit is wonderful. Um, it, it just... It does not move very quickly, which mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, but I also don't think it really capitalizes on what it actually does show you and just kind of crams all of it into the end. Yeah, I feel like if this was a HBO or high-level production miniseries or ongoing, you know, 10-episode, hour-long, you know, mandalorian style you know sci-fi drama on hbo or disney this would be phenomenal you could do so much with this as a tom cruise produced film that's sacrificed a whole ton of writing in exchange for the visual aspect of this film it's not great but i've still very much enjoy watching it as a visual experience and as a sci-fi world building experience i'm right there with you with the story is just i don't give a shit 101 well and i i think what you're saying is spot on because it's okay if the end result is predictable as long as the journey to get there is interesting case in point I know it's kind of a tough choice of TV show, but um, Game of Thrones, which had a very disappointing ending, I understand. Still, though, you're kind of expecting, and granted, um, uh, fucking whatever his name is, G... What's his name? The guy who wrote the books? Oh, George... George R.R. Martin. Um, He does a good job. Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman, famous writer of Game of Thrones. Um, George R. R. Martin does a really good job of like constantly, you know, putting to the side what you think is going to happen. But by and large, I think anybody who watched the show, you were building towards the moment where the Night King would be defeated. And you knew that kind of from the moment the Night King showed up because that's how these types of things go. The movie, the show isn't necessarily about that. It's more so about everything that leads up to that moment and then fallout therein and this could have been built better for that because the whole idea of what they call them the sat the scavs um yeah that is an interesting concept that basically boiled down to oh they're also humans the robots are programmed to kill humans that's all we need out of this and then moved on And that's actually probably the most interesting part of the movie. But because of how much time it spends in other places, it gets short shrift in terms of screen time and script because the movie has to move forward by the time that it meets them to reach the end in, you know, under four hours. And I really think this falls under the, I don't know if I necessarily want to call it cliche, but the, just unnecessary 
Hollywood trope of just ham fisting a romance story into an otherwise romanceless film that does not benefit from it in any capacity. Like if it was just a person he worked with in that tower, it could be his wife. It could not be the wife. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't affect anyone's driving factor in this. The fact that it's his wife that he finds and it's those memories of her that kind of brings it back. I can see why that is something that makes it easier to kind of bring about those memories and bring that inner human out of Tom Cruise's, you know, quote unquote clone. But I don't think it's necessary. And I don't think any of the romance and the driving forces of romance being what this film is about makes it a better film. Like, I think it's better as a solely sci-fi film with characters being married and just having that relationship, but also having a appropriate relationship for people in this scenario. And I get that it's just to build the audience and to be able to make back the budget because you want to be able to make a film that not just, you know, 18 to 35 year old men want to watch. Like I get it, but I don't think it makes it a better film. I I definitely see its place in certain parts, but there's also chunks of it that like, like when um, Victoria goes skinny dipping in the pool, mm-hmm. that scene just Pointless. contributed nothing. Their relationship means nothing in this film. Well, the idea that Victoria's emotional response to seeing Tom Cruise with Julia leading to her own death. Okay. All right, cool. I'm, And that's part of, I think, the like, while watching this, you can tell this was a book. Yeah. And we say that a lot. And I think this part of it is it's where that shows. graphic novel. Right, right. Yeah. Um, which I'm just lumping into book. Um, which is fine. I just, I didn't realize it was a graphic novel until this watch of it. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize it until I read it at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> In a book. Um, and I think the romance part of it is probably one of the things that is most obviously bookish because those moments are prob take up less time and like mind share in a book or a graphic novel than they do on screen because you can kind of bounce in and out of that a lot more seamlessly and linger on it less with written word than you can on screen like it can, uh, the entirety of Victoria's presence in the film can probably be boiled down to a handful of pages, but it would be very jarring visually if you were to cut to Victoria for her to basically have very quick fire conversations and be able to get her thoughts and emotional responses to them and then cut hard right back to Tom Cruise for the action. It would be uncomfortable it would, it would be an uneasy feeling with how that editing would end up working out even though it would reduce the screen time and that's one of the that's kind of the type of things that you can often get um that oh this was a book kind of vibe from because this isn't contributing anything because mm-hmm. it probably was less significant in the page count than it is in the screen time um and so I uh, and it's like I get it like do you just cut it out and call them co-workers well then how does Victoria die like uh, 
but at the same time, I I think not having the scabs be a bigger part of it is probably the biggest failing. I think not. Also, the clone shit just kind of being dropped in there at the end is kind yeah. honestly genuinely a little bit hilarious because it again could have been a TV show that would make so much more sense uh, because the idea that here we are an hour and a half into this movie, there are 30 minutes left. Theoretically, everything revealed should be revealed. And now it just comes down to the bringing together of all the things we've learned. And, 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 you know, Tom Cruise just finally making the choice to do the thing. And the movie's just like, nah, clones. All right, moving on. Yep. Oh God. I had something. Oh, like, uh, I really wish they went into who the fuck these aliens were in any capacity other than just, yeah, they showed up. Oh, they're actually the bad guys in this big ship. Okay. Um, oh, it's a big robot floating thing in the center of this giant floating thing. Okay. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're just going to accept that as what it is. 30 seconds of screen time there and it's going to blow the fuck up. So, yeah, just had no idea. Yeah, it just moves from planet to planet, stealing the resources. And I I don't really, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a lot to how that happens, how we get to that point that is confusing Mm -hmm. to me. I, I don't think it's worth arguing about because we'll just never know. And again, it doesn't really affect things, but theoretically speaking, if this, cause I assume it's just the one entity in that big ship, right? That's what I assumed. Yeah. So if that thing is powerful enough to destroy all of earth's weapons capabilities, why does it need to rely on Guys, Tom Cruise clones and drones to kill the rest of the. And why does it even really care? They did themselves because in by providing them with the drone batteries to blow up the thing in the first place. Because they don't have thumbs, so they can't do it themselves. But then, how do they destroy the nuclear capabilities of the armies that were previously in place pre um, apocalypse? I guess, technically. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's it's smart enough and powerful enough to destroy all of the world's armies that have nuclear capabilities, but yep. can't defeat the guerrilla guys. But also, why does it matter if you're already stealing their resources and they seemingly don't have the armaments to stop you? Josh, there's a lot of questions that possibly 10, 15 hours of this story during a season of a show, possibly, uh, that could explain all this. But right, we have two. Yeah. And we chose romance. <laughs> <laughs> and love wins. After all, he dropped her at the upstate New York. <laughs> oh, man. She must have gotten up pissed off as shit. Who? Uh, Julia. Dude, if I resign myself to dying, like f- for a purpose, for a cause, 
and I was like, I am going to die and I'm okay with it. And I've come to terms and I went through all the emotions that I would have to, to get to that point. And then I woke up. I think I'd be kind of pissed off. If I resign myself to dying with my husband and then wake up in a fucking field and my husband's clone just walks up like, Hey, it's also me. has like, a kid. What? And when did they fuck? When? When there's when? two kids there. There was two? Yeah, there's a little boy too. I didn't notice the other one. The boy shows up with the other Tom Cruise. I didn't even I didn't even notice that. Dude, it like that ending scene, like I, I but I, truly did not words, need to sentence, think. Okay. I enjoyed the film, but that final scene just was by the time I got there and just saw it all breaking down, my only reaction was, I don't care. I don't know what this is. I don't care. I'm just not going to acknowledge this. And uh, it worked out. I also thought it would, would, I'd be very mad if I was Morgan Freeman and I got out of the like pod thing. Cause he was like, I wish I could see their faces when it happened only to find out mm-hmm. that the, the thing they're killing doesn't have a face. <laughs> Uh, like oh i'm just looking at a smaller version of the big floating thing in the sky (laughs) oh Oh, Oh, what a fucking movie uh all right potential do you have any um any other thoughts on it no not really all right well then give me your final rating and review um really great visual movie really great sci-fi potential and world building potential actual writing is pretty much about what you would expect from if I described this movie to you and you had to give a gut reaction of like oh how well this is going to be written and what kind of story it's going to be it's pretty much on point you know I think going into it not having those high expectations helps Um, but at the end of the day I want to give it a I'll give it a three and a half Eh, yeah fuck it what do I care Three and a half. I would enjoy. I would sit down and watch this again, still, for the third time. Um. Yeah. I. It's not so bad of a movie that you're gonna sit there and be like, "Oh my god, please fucking end! Oh my god, please fucking end! Oh my god, please fucking end!" Like we have watched mm-hmm. some of those best. for this show, and we've you know we've watched movies that do that to us. Just as you watch movies, um, this isn't that. But like I literally forgot I watched this. Um, that's what this movie is. It it fills a spot in like the lineage of one-off big budget sci-fi movies, which is a form of art that I very much so like and subscribe to. And I think Corwin and I are both looking forward to Dune, which we're hoping is another chapter in the um very niche area that is one-off big budget sci-fi films which is a fun place to be um but i i wouldn't ever actually recommend anybody watch this i mean again i forgot it existed let alone would recommend someone else go see this so i'll probably give it a two like it's not bad but yeah i can at least understand where you're coming from Thank you. All right. Well, then let's take it. Let's wind it back to 1955 and talk about the Knights of the Hunter. 
uh, which was directed by Charles Lofton, the only film he ever directed, first and last. Um, it is based on the novel by Davis Grubb, and the screenplay was written by James Agee. Um, it stars Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winters, and Lillian Gish. Um, this film had an estimated budget of $795,000 and a worldwide gross of, or at least what I have here, $2,000. No fucking way. Woo, that's awful. <laughs> I don't believe that. Um, I, I'm hard pressed to believe that as well, but at the same time, what do we know about box office numbers from 1955? So I'm going to just roll with it. And that's very funny. Um, the tagline of this movie is the hands of Robert Mitchum in the night of the hunter. That's the tagline. That's the tagline. That's, that's not a real tagline. Barely exists. Um, this movie has no major awards, nominations, nor wins. Um, this film is about a religious fanatic who marries a gullible widow whose young children are reluctant to tell him where their real daddy hid the $10,000 he'd stolen in a robbery. Um, this was my pick, so I'll get started. Um, so this this is an interesting movie in terms of its success. It is It was a commercial flop um, and poorly critically received when it originally came out. Um, which is one of the reasons why it's considered a, a classic, but has like no Oscar nominations, which is pretty rare to see because usually movies we consider classics are drenched in awards. Um, and this one doesn't even have a nomination. Cult um, classic. Yeah, this is definitely a cult classic, but when, you know, in this era where you're used to seeing, you know, the, um, to have and to have nots and, and you're, it happened one night and, you know, that type of shit where there'll be some, you know, larger marquee names and awards. And Robert Mitchum, while certainly a name, I think people may recognize uh, when we talk about film stars of this era, definitely not a guy like, you know, Cary Grant or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, like watching this movie, you see where a lot of modern day horror elements come into play as well as a lot of interesting concepts about how Americans use, not practice, but use religion and how much power and manipulation that wields, especially in the setting that this film uses it and uh, for the darkly nefarious purposes that it uses it for. In addition to some very interesting visuals um, that I think this film presents um, alongside some pretty weak child acting but with a very dominant performance from Robert Mitchum um, I I find this movie to be fascinating and I am a big fan interested to hear what you think Mr. Heller I went into this with not necessarily high expectations but positive feelings because you said how much or how you expected me to enjoy this movie um I found that I didn't give a fuck about a single one of these characters in any capacity. And while I do acknowledge and appreciate the message it's sending about religion and, you know, the human condition, if you will, um, every one of these people just annoyed the piss out of me because of just their decisions and just their deeply flawed characters. And I just, 
I couldn't ever get past that. And that was kind of it. Like, I hated the preacher because he's a piece of shit. Uh, I hated the dad for making this wildly ridiculous decision to, instead of, you know, trying to escape, just like, eh, I'm going to go hang out with my kid, give him a bunch of money and hope that he is able to handle the pressure of never telling anyone about $10,000. And uh, is this supposed to take place? It can't be in 1955, right? It's no, like um, way, this, way is, a, this is supposed to take place during the Great Depression. Okay, so 10 grand in 1929 is a stupid amount of money, especially to leave to a 10-year-old. The 10-year-old who is probably the most likable character, but even then is just, it's not a great performance and it was very hard to find compelling because of that. Uh, just, I don't know, you could go down the whole list of, and I get that that is a definite, clear directorial decision to make every one of these characters deeply flawed. Um, but I just, I couldn't really get myself past that. Um, I think it's a, <clears throat> a, a writing choice more so than a directing choice, but uh, um, you know, what do you words. think the flaws are with the, the kids? Um, Pearl is just a small child and has the reasoning skills of a small child. And when it is something this kind of grand of a, a you know, this something with this grand of important, ah, fucking whatever words are just, I am so fucking tired. I can't put words together. Um, she's obviously not going to make decisions based off of critical thought and doesn't have any critical thinking skills. Um, so her kind of just like, oh, I'm just going to go play with all this fucking money in the yard. Oh, I'm going to tell this, you know, bad person that I just met out of nowhere who decided to marry my mom exactly where the you know money is and, and gets, you know, talking out of it, obviously, but it gets to that point and then just the son maybe I was just in a really weird mood where I was just like fuck kids because again like he just kind of had uh, had the right head on his shoulders just fell for the you know ruses of a grown man and known con artist um, yeah I, I'm not sitting here saying I have a you know well thought out thesis about why all of these characters just kind of got on my bad side or, or just kind of irked me in a way just they did and i i can't avoid it well what do you think of the um i know obviously you don't like him you're not supposed to like him uh, right. but what do you think of the robert mitchum character the preacher uh other than being just human fucking garbage through and through yeah um well acted i think it was a good performance by the actor whose name i am currently forgetting robert mitchum. Uh, robert mitchum thank you did you just say the robert mitchum character yes cool 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 cool, cool. again brain network um i think the idea of using a you know a preacher a pastor to kind of show just how easily religion can be manipulated and how we trust people who devote themselves devote themselves to religion and assume that they follow you know the the teaching of the bible and teaching of you know christianity to a t when as we see so often today and so often in cinema that uh 
usually those are the worst kind of people. Um, so if you're deeply religious, um, take a step back and look at all the shit you do. Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely think he was far and away the only character that I think was well um, acted, I guess. Yeah, and he was definitely, I think, the most compelling character. Um, right. The the love and hate tattoos on his hand are an iconic part of cinema history. They come up um, rather frequently. Um, they came yeah. up in a movie that we time. talked about already. Um, if anyone has seen or listened to our episode on Do the Right Thing, Radio Rahim wears love and hate uh, brass knuckles and gives a speech that is meant to all be an homage to this Robert Mitchum character mm-hmm. from this film. Um, the love and hate thing comes up all the time. Um, Isn't it in um, Suicide Squad? Doesn't the Joker have that? I'm going to be honest there, buddy. I, I've never I seen it. checked out during Suicide Squad. I have I've no never idea. Seen it. I've never seen it and I've never cared to see it. I just feel like I remember seeing some sort of promotional material with that shit on there. No fucking clue. But, like, yeah. who cares? <laughs> um, but this, it, it it's a very interesting oh, take. I just looked up a picture of the Joker from Suicide Squad, and it's... I bet it's terrible. It's all the fucking damage tattoo on his forehead. Oh, there's so much. There's so much here. Yeah, but there's a lot going on. But that's why I went with the Do the Right Thing reference, because that movie's actually, you know, good. Good. Um, yeah. <laughs> and the Radio Rahim character is also iconic, so... Um, Anyway, yeah, I this is, I think, a really terrifying movie in a lot of ways that gets covered up with some of the quaintness of it, which I think is part going back and watching movies of that era and part the intention of the film. You know, like hearing... Robert Mitchum say, I'm going to something like really awful. Like I'm going to rip your arms off you little something to, you know, that like four year old girl about mm-hmm. the $10,000. Like that's, that's fucking dark. And, and there's little moments like that from Robert Mitchum's character, because he's not just supposed to be a bad guy. He is, he is straight up evil. Mm-hmm. Um, that really almost can like still take you aback, especially I think, you know, like, like I said, because of the era and because of, you know, the quaintness of like the small peasant town that they live in. Um, you know, like when, when he kills the mother and, and you see her, her body very blissfully down under the water tied to her car, you know, there's all types of moments of just really deep, depravity in this mm-hmm. film that I, I think weigh themselves very effectively. And the ideas tied into this film about religion and about depression era desperation, I think paint a really interesting picture on kind of the human experience. In addition to these concepts of what like a, a, a you know paternal figures and a craving for them as well as a cuz like one of the reasons pearl latches on to um 
Robert Mitchum so readily is like, clearly here's a small child that wants to have a dad. Like her dad got literally taken from her in the beginning of the movie and then died. And here's this little girl who just like wants a parent figure. And here comes Robert Mitchum to be that. And then Mm -hmm. at the end of the film, you see the little boy whose name I forget. Um, had this really big response to seeing Robert Mitchum get taken down into handcuffs the same way his father was and has like uh, a whole episode where he like can't live through seeing the exact same visual and having to relive that moment and, you know, kind of has a small breakdown about it, which again is a very interesting and weighty topic to have in this type of movie and mm-hmm. there's moments like that all throughout that really show themselves to be very dark and very heavy um even though you know, a lot of the film can get lost in some of the bad acting from literally everyone not named robert mitchum um and some of the you know the the smallness of the settings Man, everyone but Robert Mitchum is bad in this movie. Uh, completely agree. Uh, I will say that final scene uh, where he does break down at the, you know, that same shot for shot, you know, call back to, you know, the, the image he saw with his father when he was first taken by the police. That one definitely hurt. Like as much as I didn't give a shit about him as a character, acknowledging what that pain must have been like and how just traumatizing that must have been for him to react that way with someone who by all means was attempting to seriously hurt him throughout the entire film must have been just a daunting daunting experience so hey kids uh kids get fucked up by childhood trauma yeah i I mean and and this film which is again unfortunate the child acting in this movie is really quite bad um this room film really is about you know that kind of innocence and fragility um and you know determination of children and almost their their immunity to the charms of this type of character who was very who i you know is a wolf in sheep's clothing, even though he is, because I, you know, he calls himself a preacher. There's nothing that actually proves at any point he ever was. You know, the second he finds out about, he's, you know, he's rooms with the the children's dad in prison before he gets executed. That's how he finds out about the money and knows where to go. Um, the second he finds out about the money, he he turns, the, oh, I'm a pre, you know, you could do a lot of mission work with that shit or like fucking whatever. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there's no, no one knows who this man is. That's part of, right. you know, the horror element of it, as well as the willingness to want to believe thing of that comes with, you know, some of this religion aspect of it. No one knows who this man is. Like when, and what's wild is that he built the persona so much that he goes to like a corner store to talk to the girl that uh, the kids end up, one of the girls that the kids end up living with at the end of the movie, um, 
and people walking past him call him a preacher. Like, like it's, it's a blind faith truly to go along with this horrible, horrible man as he kind of just does whatever he wants to do. I mean, isn't all faith blind? Um, Faith Hope is a person, right? She's, I'm, I think sure. she sees yeah, Faith Hill. She vision. Um, yeah. yeah, those people see. Yeah. yeah, so those faiths aren't blind. Faith, the strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. There you go. There we have it, folks. There we have it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I have anything overly creative left to say about it. Uh, uh I'm straight any, up uh, yawning into the mic. I'm so sorry. Ah, we'll, we, I was we will trying survive. to lean back and I, I could only get so far. Um, what do you, uh, do you have anything left to say before we uh, wrap this one up? Absolutely not. Uh, all right, then this is my movie. I will start. Um, this is an interesting type of class. It's like, you know, if, if you ever watch M, and I forget if we talked about M on the podcast. I feel like we did. Um, but if you ever watch M, you know, again, you go into this like 1930s black and white um, foreign film. And it's tough to like consider those movies to be anything other than like kind of corny. And then M is one of the darkest movies you could probably watch, especially in that era. It is very sick uh, of a movie. It's about children getting murdered in Berlin. Like, it's not a happy movie. And this has a lot of that feeling, but instead of the severity of, like, you know, child murders, it it instead lulls this sense of, of... Again, I keep saying quaintness, and I want to diversify the words I use to describe it, but I can't at the moment. Um, with you know, like this small town, this Where's humble town kind of thing, um, and then really shows some dark aspects of having the you know blind trust in your fellow man. Um, I think that the visuals in this movie are are very interestingly presented um, throughout the entirety of the film i think they do a really good job with transitions but also symbolic the symbolic visuals that you get throughout the film um it's choice of lighting body positioning there's many examples of people being positioned either um coffin-like or christ-like throughout the film um and robert mitchum is just wonderful in this so i'll give this for me personally, I'm going to give it a four out of five. I think I'd be more wanting to give it a four and a half if the acting was better from everyone on in Robert Mitchum. But unfortunately, if you go into this, as much as I do really enjoy this movie, expect the acting to not be great. Uh, I'm giving it a three and my reasons are known. I don't think it's a necessarily bad movie, you know, even if I didn't have a, a ton of great things to say about the characters, um, because 
I can be objective about my own issues with like watching film and I acknowledge there's none of these characters that, that did anything wrong to me or were you know they were there and written that way for a reason and me just being easily aggravated late at night after work is nothing against the film it's still a good well-made film that has a lot of really great points to come across about religion and about you know the human condition um but at the end of the day it didn't really you know move me in any capacity and and depending on the person i would recommend this i don't think this is a widespread recommend um but yeah i'll give it a three all right, buddy. Then let's get into next week's picks. Corwin Heller, what you got? Uh, let me pull up what I what I highlighted because I uh, I had forgotten off the top of my head. Uh, yesterday, the Beatles movie, uh, just as a an easy watch, something I really don't know much about, but I feel like it could be something that we talk about. Well, I haven't seen that movie since it came out. I've never seen it. Yeah, I am. I'm with it. I'm in. I'm about it. I'm down. Well, I'd hope you wouldn't be wildly against it, but you know, hey, to each their own. To each their own. Right on. All right. So that's yesterday. I am sticking with old shit. Um, so yeah, I am going to go. Did I hear a grumble? Yes. I'll make it worse. Please don't. Uh, I'm going to go with the 1954 version of A Star is Born. Okay. Did you see, Corwin, the 2019 version of the film? No. Okay. Well, I did. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I'm actually surprised you didn't watch that. Um, What about Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper screams Corwin Heller fanfic? Well, I mean, Oscar movie. Yeah. I mean, I, did you watch La La Land? I've watched about 15 minutes of La La Land twice. And yeah, but see, at least you started. But you see, you started that. I'm surprised that you would watch La La Land, but not A Star is Born. Uh, La La Land was nearly the winner for Best Picture. So I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. It's got to be good to some degree. But a, a Star is Born was also nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't do all that back then. <laughs> Fucking leave me alone. A Star is Born is a more recent movie. <laughs> I don't give a shit, Josh. I tried watching La La Land based off of your own recommendation. Probably someone else's as well. I don't think you would have watched it for like my recommendation. It. What's up? I don't think you would have watched it for my recommendation. You're right. You recommend a lot of movies that I don't watch. Um... No, I mean, I don't think I recommended that movie to you. It's quite possible, Josh. I'm I'm kind of like clawing myself out of this hole here. I'm just doing what I can. I don't fucking know. Corwin, everything you've said is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Is that any different from anything I ever say normally? For reference, La La Land came out in 2016. A Star is Born came out in 2018. 2016 was when La La Land and Moonlight came out? Yes. What? Yes. Uh, I'm so fucking old and I'm 23. What is going on? You're not old. I know. I feel it. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm turning off my mic. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, 
it, I guess it'll be a one-sided conversation about how it compares to the 2018 version of La La Land. Or, God damn it, now you have me doing it. Of A Star is Born, and I'm not going to subject you to watching two versions of A Star is Born. But the 1954 version, I think, is still better than the 2018 version. So I'll have change, that conversation I'm by change myself. I'm going to my movie pick to the 2018 Star is Born. Oh, you actually want to? That'd be an interesting yeah, idea. That's, you know what? Uh, yeah. Oh, all right. Lock it in. Double star. Two stars will be born next week. Double a star is born for 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 next week's episode. That makes this. That makes it very easy to remember who picked what. <laughs> I picked um, the new one. Really, just like, like what movies. movie did you pick? Oh, the same movie I picked, but older slash newer. Very nice. Because um, in case anyone has not listened to the show before, Corwin and I often forget what we picked and the other person picked in a given week. So this keeps it easy. Um, all right, cool. So that's that. Corwin, anything else before we go? Nah, fuck off. All right, I will. <laughs> uh, if you want to follow this show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you want to uh, follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Hello. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. And if you want to email us with thoughts, comments, concerns, criticisms, you can do so at juiceinthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next Tuesday, y'all have a good one. Bye.